0: Okay. You guys ready? Let's do this. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Exodus chapter 8 is where we are. We're going to cover four chapters this morning. It'll only take us four hours. You guys ready for that? Actually, I usually try to shoot for about 45 minutes, but as you well know, I don't usually land there. It's usually 45 minutes to an hour, but uh, last night we did a pretty good job with these four chapters, but we'll be looking at chapters 8 through 11, God's Severe Mercy. This is our Exodus series, The Way Out. And uh, what is this idea of God's Severe Mercy? You can also grab your sermon notes, and and you can follow along in just a moment here. But let me give you some quotes that I think that help us to understand God's Severe Mercy. That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? God's Severe Mercy, that's the title Here's a couple of quotes that help you to understand his severe mercy. Timothy Keller says sometimes God seems to be killing us when he's actually saving us. That's his severe mercy. Johnny Erickson Tata from her book, When God Weeps, put it this way sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Elizabeth Elliot put it this way, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus, God's severe mercy. The book of Exodus is not just about redemption, but also about the revelation of God who makes himself known. You can follow along there on your notes. And so your faith, hope, and love, your redemption will grow in direct proportion to your exchanging of... It'll grow in direct proportion to you exchanging your smaller version of God for the true God of the Bible. That's revelation. So this uh, redemption and revelation go hand in hand. My, My desire for you as we've been walking through this is that you would have a high view of God, a really high view of God. In America today, we have very low view of God. And what brings the redemption is this very high view of God. Our, our smaller version of God will prove to be insufficient when our faith is tested through serious questioning or intense suffering. And, um, and so the book, of Revel, uh, the book of Exodus is giving us that big high view of God. Now, we have entered the great conflict between Yahweh, the one true God, and the false gods of the Egyptians. And what triggers the series of plagues that we're going to look at Coming down and striking Egypt is Pharaoh's response to Moses' command from God to liberate his people. Remember, Moses confronted Pharaoh, and he's speaking in behalf of God, and he says, let my people go so that they can worship me. And Pharaoh's response found in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, he says, well, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And uh, the plagues come to answer that question. The plagues come to answer that question. So what's, what's up with the plagues? Why, why does God bring the plagues on to the Egyptians? What are the plagues about? Well, there's two superficial responses. One is this. Yes, I love a God who strikes the bad people. Yeah. That's a superficial response. Another superficial response, the second one would be um, that I hate the idea and think it's dangerous to believe in a God of judgment. And the reason why both of those responses are superficial is because the first one is absence of God's love, and the second one is absence of God's justice, because God is both loving and just, and therefore we can, we can and should trust and obey Him. So we got our work cut out for us this morning. We're going to explore this idea of God's severe mercy and try to understand, uh, why, why should I obey God? That's the answer that's found in the plagues. And he gives us really three answers. You can see on your notes. We'll get there eventually. But why should we obey God? Because he is the only true God. That's the first answer. Number two, he is the designer of our lives. And then number three, he was the judge who was judged. And so that's where we're headed with the study. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. We need uh, a lot of help this morning. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, to illuminate this text and to apply it to our lives. So let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. You are both infinite in love and perfect in justice. Your love seeks our justification, and your justice demands punishment for sin. You passed the required sentence of death on our sin and then your son, our Savior, took that punishment himself on the cross. Why would we ever question your love or wisdom in our circumstances when we see the lengths to which you have gone in order to demonstrate both your love and justice on the cross? May that reality give us help and hope to embrace more fully your severe mercy, transforming every part of our lives. In Jesus' beautiful name, we pray these things, and everyone said? Amen. 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 So, so if you're kind of new with this, and you have been walking through the book of Exodus, you're going to go, wow, God's pretty angry here. He's pretty upset. Well, you need to understand the context here, uh, and... Uh, You've got to keep in mind the context of this book is that the Egyptians have brutally enslaved God's people for 400 years. On top of that, they have also attempted a genocide against God's people two different times. The first through the midwives at childbirth, Exodus 1, and then the other by throwing the newborns into the Nile River, Exodus 2. Now, I'm not gonna, we're not putting the verses up on the screen, so make sure you got your Bible uh, even if it's like this or an electronic or whatever, grab your Bibles out and you're going to follow along. I'm going to do a hop, skip, and jump through these four chapters. I'm going to be moving fast. You're going to want to see some key verses here. But this is what I'm wanting you to look for as we work through these four chapters. And uh, and what's here is that uh, each plague seems to increase with intensity, showing God's power over Egypt's gods. So you're going to see these plagues increasing in intensity. And then you're going to also see God's patience with people. He's very patient with us, He's patient with people in general. And you're going to also see His passion to be known and worshiped by the people. That's what's going to be revealed in this text. And then you're going to also see Pharaoh's perpetual hardening of his heart despite his moments of repentance which proves to be ungodly repentance. So even his moments of repentance is, is kind of an ungodly repentance. And so we're gonna make a distinction between godly and ungodly repentance, and that's where we're headed. And so grab your Bibles. Exodus, in fact, we'll go back to just... I'll, Highlight Exodus 7. We talked about Exodus 7. And so also grab your sermon notes out because I'm going to have you fill in the blanks as it relates to these plagues. And so we saw last week in our study in Exodus chapter 7, the first plague. The first plague is water turned to blood. That should be the first one up on the screen. You see that? You can write that into your notes. I wanted you to kind of keep active through this. So water turned into blood and uh, what's interesting about this but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts that's verse 22 of chapter 7 and so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he didn't even give it a second thought and and so we move to chapter 8 and now we have the second plague Of frogs. That's your next fill in the blank there, verse one, chapter eight. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will I will plague all your country with frogs. Now bear with me, this is a bit tedious as we work through all these plagues. I wanted you to kind of get a feel of this because we got some really important application, but I want you to walk through this with me. What I mean by tedious, it's long, slow, and kind of monotonous, but there's some really good points through this. So you got the frogs coming, and I'm telling you there's frogs in everything, even in their food and their beds, and (laughs) they're all over the place. And so in verse seven, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up. On the land of Egypt, verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord. Get get rid of these frogs. They're overwhelming. They're killing us. Verse 10, you see Moses doing that, so he gets rid of the frogs. But notice in verse 15, chapter 8, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now you're gonna see that kind of pattern in Pharaoh's life uh, multiple times. And I'm gonna share with you a little bit of what I've seen growing up in the church and being around the church my whole life where people will come to faith and almost they come to faith because they've got a lot of stuff going on in their life. And so they come pleading with God, take the heat off. And as soon as the heat is turned off, then they're back, at, back to their own ways. So what is that about? Why would someone do that? It's because they're coming to God to get from him rather than to be with him. Major difference. Major differences. So we'll talk more about that as we work through this. Now we come to the third plague, the gnats. That's verse 16 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. But notice verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. So they tried to duplicate it, but they couldn't. So the first two plagues they were able to duplicate, they also were able to duplicate, remember the the snakes, the serpents, and so uh, Moses' serpent ate their serpents, and it was kind of interesting. So they were able to duplicate this, but now they can't duplicate this. And in fact, uh, look at verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, I love it when the Bible uses that idea. It's just a flick of the finger of God. It's just like, that's what he does. This is God. This is God doing this. They they recognize this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, verse 20, we come to the fourth plague, which are the flies. It's up there on your notes. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. And as he goes out to the water in As he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Now you're gonna see that statement over and over again. That's the essence of the book. Let my people go so that they can serve me. Let my people go so they can worship me. That's the essence of life change, by the way. You know that. And that's the essence of the gospel is that he... He sets us free from something for something. He sets us free from our enslavements, our counterfeit gods, our pseudo-saviors, for... He sets us free for himself, for all in intimacy with him. So, so think about this. So life change... So when is a thief no longer a thief? When he quits stealing? No. When he quits stealing, gets a job and starts giving. So, that, so does that make sense? So so life change change happens not by putting off the putting off the old, but putting on the new. So let my people go. It's not that's not just that, it. That's not just, you know, the gospel is more than that. Let my people go so that they can worship me. So he sets us free from enslavements so that we can have all intimacy with him, so we can have relationship with him. So when you overcome the issues of your life, you're, you're, you're putting off the old and putting on the new. Just because you put off the old doesn't mean you're fully transformed. You've got to take on the new and come into intimacy. There's nothing better than intimacy with God. It's life's most satisfying reality. Intimacy with God, on intimacy with God. There's nothing like it. And that's why he sets us free because we have substituted God for a lot of other things in our lives. It can be relationships or a bank account or money or, or career or athleticism or, you know, whatever they might be. And he sets us free from those things. Not that those things aren't, they can be many good things, but they're good things that we've turned into ultimate things. And he sets us free from those things so that we can have truly the ultimate thing or person that is God. And so you see that over and over again. And... Uh, So where where did we land? The fourth plague? I kind of went off on that one, didn't I, a little bit and talked about it. And so the the flies, or else if you're, I think it was verse 21, or else if you will not let the people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which you stand. If you've ever raised around a bunch of horses and cows and animals, and you know the swarm of flies that can be around those, they're, they're, they're hideous, they're horrible. But note, notice verse 22, and on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarm of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, verse 23. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. So, what's happening here? So, when we almost get the idea, up to the fourth plague, the people of God were experiencing the plagues just like the Egyptians, and now God makes a distinction and protects his people from the plagues. Now, what, what can we learn from that? I think there's a there's some really good lessons here. And uh, the one lesson we can learn is that, uh, that when we go through troubles and tri- uh, trials and crisis, sometimes we go through them just like everybody else does. Like back in 2008 when, with that d- downturned economy... You know, many of you got hit hard, and you're a Christian. You're thinking, well, where's God in all this? And then I know others that didn't get hit with that same crisis. So So sometimes he calms the storm, and sometimes he calms his child in the storm. Either way, you can trust his loving, wise control of your life. He's the one that calls the shots. So don't always expect to uh, be spared from the plagues that come into good old God bless America. Sometimes you're gonna be hit too and you need to suffer well through that and point to Christ in the midst of that. But sometimes he's gonna make a distinction and protect you from those plagues. But either way, you gotta rest in him. You can trust him. He's gonna take care of us one way or the other. And I think that's part of that. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. So once again these are the flies and so Pharaoh said, uh, "Man, I've had enough of these flies. We're going to let you go and sacrifice to God." Verse 30, so Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord and the Lord did as Moses asked, removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. What is up with this Pharaoh? I mean, he's a knucklehead. And look at verse (laughs) 9, verse 9, the fifth plague, so livestock, so you got livestock decimated, Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they can serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field and the horses and the donkeys and the camels and the herds and the flocks. Notice verse four again, once again, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And look at verse seven. So Pharaoh sent out, so, so Pharaoh sent and behold, see, he wanted to inquire, hey, why are we getting hit and God's people are not getting hit? And he sees that and he sees the distinction, but it says his heart is still hardened and he would not let the people go. And then we got the sixth plague the boils, verse 8 of chapter 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Look at verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So, so God is just validating. He's reinforcing the choice that, that Pharaoh has already made. He's just continuing. And he's, he's going to use it for his redemptive purposes. And then you've got the seventh plague, hail. That's verse 13 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now this is an interesting verse verse 15 for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. So what is he saying here? I could have annihilated you right from the get-go, but because I'm merciful, I'm just giving you these kind of warning shots in the in the air to forewarn you of this coming judgment so that you can so you can repent and believe. And so you get this beautiful picture of not only God is a just God but he's a very merciful God and he gives us plenty of opportunities to turn towards him and to repent and believe look at verse 18 chapter 9 and behold about this time tomorrow I will cause every heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded you now, what's interesting here until now, and what God is doing here, God is really uh, telegraphing his punches. In other words, you guys know what I mean by that? He's telegraphing his punches. He's, he's, he's giving forewarning. In fact, this is what, I, what I'm going to do. In fact, what you see throughout this is seven times Pharaoh is warned of coming judgment. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Repent. Believe. And he keeps hardening his heart. God is even even more so here towards the end is telegraphing his punches in his mercy. And in fact, now therefore send, get your livestock. So he's telling Pharaoh to tell his people to get their livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh... Hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field, and they were you know they were decimated by that. And so you continue to work through here. Uh, He gets fed up with that. Then Pharaoh sent this is verse twenty seven of chapter nine. He gets fed up with that. Calls out uh, Moses, please take the heat off. So so Moses pleads with God. Then verse thirty four. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servant. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken to him. By the way, go back to chapter nine, what I just read. I didn't read it completely through, but look at verses 27 and 28. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. It almost sounds like real repentance, doesn't it? Now let me make a distinction between godly repentance and ungodly repentance. repentance. And I've seen this in the church. I've seen people, bad things are happening to them, and they come running to God. Oh, God, please, 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 God. God, help us, help us, help us. And then when the heat's off, then they go back to whatever they were doing before that, go back to their counterfeit gods or whatever. So here's the difference between uh, godly repentance, ungodly repentance. It's actually defined for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 10, and 11. 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 10, and 11. And it makes this distinction between the two. So check your heart here. You know, are you coming to God? Are you here this morning to use God, to get from Him, or to be with Him? By the way, to be with Him is better by far than anything that He could ever do for you to have Him in your life. Oh, my goodness. So regardless of how hard it gets or how difficult it might get, if you have Him, Oh my goodness, you've got everything you need. And so so godly repentance, let me start with ungodly, ungodly repentance. Ungodly repentance is that I'm sorrow, I'm sorrowful because of the pain my sin has caused me. This is so painful, take the heat off and I promise I'll serve you and then when the heat's off, then you're not serving him. But true repentance is sorrowful over the pain that sin has caused God, the heart of God, and the heart of others. It's, it's not self-centered and self-focused. It's more other-centered and other-focused because you realize, I've trampled on the heart of God. Not only that, I'm missing out on what's most important in life, and that's to know God, to experience Him. Okay, uh, there's a lot here, as you can see. Then you've got, uh, did we already talk about the eighth plague, the locust? Okay, you got the eighth plague And I said this was tedious as you work through this. And uh, he talks about bringing the locust. The locusts come. Notice in verse seven of chapter ten. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, "How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go." He's. I mean, even his own servants and his people in his court are going. Let these people out of here. This place is decimated. Egypt is ruined. And then finally, uh, Pharaoh says, calls uh, Moses back in. He lets the heat off. And then once again, we see uh, Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then the ninth plague is darkness, verse 21. We see that. And then chapter 11, we've got a final plague threatened, which is the death of the firstborn. And that's only threatened. And then chapter 12, we'll come back next week and talk about chapter 12. It's the Passover. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, what in the world is that all about? How does that apply to our lives? So if you kind of drifted off while we were reading all of that, come back, come back. <laughs> we got a Bible study here. We're still working through this, and there's some really, really good points in all of this. And so let's walk through this. And let me just say up front that these ten terrible plagues, God was judging not only the Egyptians but also the gods of Egypt. You can see that on your notes. It's right under that statement: ten terrible plagues. Exodus twelve twelve makes that clear. Numbers thirty three four. So the plagues fell on all the areas of life that were supposed to have been protected by Egypt's gods. And there were about eighty major deities in Egypt all clustered around three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. So the first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four plagues were against the land gods. And the final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And so... uh, you needed to know that because now you're going to see what we've got here in the rest of our notes. So why should we obey God? Remember the plagues were triggered by Pharaoh's response to Moses. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Okay, <laughs> here it comes. This is why, and this is what the plagues teach us about God, why we should obey God. Here's the first one. He is the only true God. And on your notes, you can see that I went through this text through these four chapters, actually five chapters, and I showed you here, gave you all the references, God's power over Egypt's gods. And that was the point of the plagues, that he is the only true God. Pharaoh, like most Egyptians, and like many Americans, were not atheists, they were pluralist. You know what a pluralist is? Pluralism is, is is kind of the dominant belief system in our culture today. Religious pluralists believe that all roads lead to God, and um, even if the claims of those roads are contradictory, which most are, and that's our belief system in America today, that as long as you're sincere, You know, whether it's Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or Islam or whatever it is, they all kind of ultimately lead towards God. So when Pharaoh is confronted by Israel's God, he's like saying, "Hey, wait a minute! You got your God, I got my God. You know, let's call it uh, quits right there because it doesn't matter who you serve, and who are you to tell me that I should bow down to you? And not like that! I'm God," and that was his attitude. And so they're coming after him and saying, no, 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 you don't understand. There's only one true and living God, and he's going to show himself to you, and he wants you to know him. And, um, and so what's also interesting about pluralism, which is very common in our culture today, is that the pluralists are adamantly against exclusivism. And we're very exclusive as, as Christians because we believe that there is only one God. And in fact, we say that not because we say it, but because our Savior said that. Jesus actually said in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so I don't say that. I, he said it, but I say it because he said it, okay? Make sense? And so, so a couple statements here to kind of understand this idea of pluralism, anyone who, anyone who would claim that all religions are equally right or true, which many people say in our culture today, so anyone who would claim that all religions are equally right or true is not listening very well to what each teaches because there's major contradiction between all the religions and that violates the first law of logic, the law of non-contradiction. So you're telling me that all of them ultimately lead to God and they all contradict each other. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That goes totally against logic. One of the major differences between Christianity and all the other major cults and religions of our world today is the deity of Christ. We believe in the deity of Christ, that Christ is God in the flesh, and they all deny it. They all deny it in one way or another. Here's another point, too, is that it it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely pluralism, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. So even pluralists are exclusive about their claim of pluralism. So everybody practices exclusivism whether they want to admit it or not. And so here's your first point, and let's move on this. So we're talking about why, why should we obey God because he is the only true God, and here's your next uh, fill in the blank. False gods are figments. False gods are a figment of our imagination that have no power to solve or to save. That's the big idea. That's the point. Now, in Exodus 20 uh, or 7.22, the Nile turns to blood, and then in Exodus 8, seven frogs everywhere this is what I found really fascinating about this is that the magicians of Egypt could duplicate it but they couldn't eliminate it so they just added to the chaos and the catastrophe of all that do you find that interesting it's it's fascinating so these dudes are kind of duplicating it almost like oh we can do that too well you're only causing more of a problem you're not actually dealing with the problem And so it tells us in Psalm 96, four through five, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 1 Timothy 2, five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. That's what the Bible teaches. I believe in the inspired word of God. I believe this is God's holy word and it speaks to us. And there's plenty of evidence giving credibility and veracity to his word. So that's, that's what I'm living for. Here's the next point. Idolatry is looking to created things to give to us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only the creator gives. So th- that's what they practiced in Egypt. That's what we practice in America. And it can be even taking good things and turning good things into ultimate things. So you can do that with a marriage. You can do that with romance, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, with money in the bank, as I've stated before, with uh, career pursuit, homes, cars, whatever. Those are all good things, but they can become ultimate things in our lives, and that, that is called uh, idolatry. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37, that's why the Bible says, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Matthew 6, 21, it says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure, if you are truly loving God with all of your heart, if you're treasuring him, so where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. What you treasure controls your heart and therefore controls your life. That's why it's so critical that we really understand God as the the god of the bible is the the only true god the true and living god and deal with our idolatry and so what you treasure controls your heart and therefore controls your life you are what you love you worship what you love you talk about what you love you will find yourself talking most about what you love so let's let's identify some idols how do you identify your idols how do i identify my idols I would rather identify your idols, okay? (laughs) Better yet, I want to identify my wife's idols. I've got a whole list. Would you like for me to share those with you? I'm going to. And she probably has a longer list. Let's just, this is how I've been able to identify my idols, is identifying idols, what dominates your thoughts? What dominates your solitude? What do you daydream about? When your mind is free to go where it is free to go, maybe when you're laying in bed you can't sleep, then you toss and turn a little bit, where does your mind go? That is very frightening for me when I begin to identify. And I, I thought I was loving God with all my heart, and indeed I, I thought I was, but I was actually loving other things like work and performance and what people said to me and about me, and all of these things begin to dominate my solitude. So, so what dominates your solitude? Here's another one: What stirs your deepest emotions? What makes you sad? What makes you mad? What makes you glad? See, see, what that tells you is that you've given your heart to something or someone. You're attached emotionally because you got the emotional response as a result of whatever's happening in that area of your life. You got to pay attention. The emotions are kind of like the the lights on the dashboard of your car. You got to pay attention to that, and you can understand a little bit more of what's going on under the hood of the car. So that's how our emotions are they're kind of responders to what's most important to us in our life. So what dominates our thoughts? What dominates our solitude? What stirs your deepest emotions? And then what do you effortlessly spend your money on? Your money and time on? You Just kind of effort, effortlessly. One of the things I was able to identify early on when my wife and I were first married was that I would spend money on books. It's like, man, I go to a bookstore, I could walk out with a couple hundred dollars worth of books. And, and I could spend money left and right. Like that And then, of course, my wife, it was for her, it was more it had to do with more of the kids and the house. And it was just effortless. But that's what you're looking for, where you can just like spend money. It's no big deal. you didn't even give it a second thought. But when it comes to other things, you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I had to give to that or not." or you know you kind of start questioning yourself. But it's those things that you kind of spend your time and, and money effortlessly on it, and they'll tell you a lot. Here's your next point on your notes. So you know you have a counterfeit God when you inordinately when you are inordinately anxious, when it is threatened, what I mean by anxious, inordinately anxious, I mean paranoid and paralyzed. When you are inordinately angry, when it is blocked, that means you're bitter. And when you are inordinately sad, when it is lost or depressed. That, that right there was the most helpful thing ever. Besides this kind of list of things, what dominates my thoughts, what stirs my deepest emotions, what moves me to action, what I effortlessly spend my money and time on, boy, that began to reveal to me where my idols were. And I thought God was the love of my life, but there were other things that were competing for that. He didn't have my deepest uh, loyalties and affections I had given them to other things and this began to expose those things that's what he's doing with the plagues he's exposing those things in our lives and so when, when I begin to see my emotional response to those things that I had most treasured in my life and it created now a certain, a certain level of anxiety and anger and sadness is appropriate it's what drives our lives but I'm talking inordinately I'm talking when it moves inordinately in that direction of being inordinate. Instead of just anxious, you're paranoid and paralyzed. So you just heard of layoffs on your job. And so you're not just anxious. It should drive a little bit of anxiety. It should blow the, the dust off of your resume and maybe get it out there and start circulating to try to find another job. Or maybe what, what, what are your options out there? But if you're paranoid, if you're paralyzed, it's because you've got too much of your trust in your job and that's your security. It's not God. Does that make sense? And so you start looking at those things. I had something that happened to me here uh, recently uh, that it, it revealed an idol. That was, I, was, I was heart sick over some things that happened within my family and I was just heart sick and it took me a long time to recover from it and I realized, wait, wait, wait. Oh my goodness, I've overly attached my heart to, to this situation, to this person, to what's going on here. So it gave me opportunity to replace this, this thing, this circumstance, this person with, with God. God, you're the love of my life. God I wouldn't be as heartsick if I hadn't put so much of my my heart on this and I need to take my heart off of that and put it on you. And so that's that's part of God working in our lives. Same thing with our sadness, depression Anger, all of that. So I I put a verse there. I love this verse, Psalm 16:4. It says, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. You will increase the sorrows of your life in direct proportion to how you run after anything more than God. Those counterfeit gods will inevitably disappoint you, they're going to create sadness. Therefore, you need to do what he says in Psalm 16:8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken. Why? Because God is at the center of my life. He's the love of my life. He's my security and significance and my my identity is in him regardless of what goes on in my life. I find life in him. I find liberty in him. I find great love in him unlike I've ever experienced before. And by the way, he, he goes on in verse 11. I love this. He says, in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there is a pleasure in God that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. Do you understand that? Do you hear me? That's what he's talking about. And that's Psalm 1611. So your emotional response is a window into the loves of your heart it's not that we love our jobs, our family, our health too much, but that we love God too little. And so what we need to do is increase our love for God. So he's got to be the supreme love of our lives, okay? You guys tracking with me? Okay, here's, here's where we go from here. So we should obey God because he is the only true God. But here's the next one. He is the designer of our lives. That's why we want to obey him. And you'll notice there on your notes, I put up underneath that obedience. This is the obedience of Moses and Aaron. And so in this text, I did tons of study on this, as you can probably tell, and I loved it because you're probably thinking, well, who in the world would read those four chapters because they're just so redundant and uh, tedious and crazy. Well, I did, okay? Uh, You're welcome. And uh, I did it so that you would understand it and so that we could kind of zip through it and maybe draw some application. But the... there's obedience, there's obedience in their lives because they understand that he's the one true living God, but they also understand that he's the designer of their lives. Now, one of the things that most, uh, that most people notice about the plagues is how natural and unmiraculous they are. Not to say that they're not miraculous, because even the Pharaoh's servants recognize, hey, this is the finger of God. This is... A, This is, but the way that they come down, they're very, they seem to be very natural and unmiraculous. For instance, the Nile turning to blood destroyed the uh, eco-ecological system and then all other plagues seem to be the consequence of that. So you got from this water turned to blood, what do you got? You got all the frogs everywhere coming out of the Nile that die and begin to rot and stink. And then the third and fourth plague, what do you have from, because the dead stinking frogs, they produce the plague of the gnats and the flies. So the gnats are the third plague, the flies are the fourth plague. I mean, it's an ecological disaster. And what are plagues five and six? They are the epidemics of destroying the livestock and then the epidemics of destroying the people through uh, skin disease boils and on it goes and then the next plague is the hell storm seven and then there's the plague of the locust, eight and then you got darkness nine and then you got death of the firstborn which is ten now let me armchair quarterback this okay I'm thinking about this you guys know what armchair quarterback is so let me let me armchair quarterback this a little bit and I'm thinking as I thought through this God 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 could have done a better job at getting across his supremacy, you know, through some other means rather than the use of these plagues. But the the reason why he used the plagues is because the plagues are making a point. We'll get to that point in a minute. But let me just armchair quarterback this by telling you about the movie. You guys remember the movie Bruce Almighty? You guys? So in in Bruce Almighty, he's complaining to God. It's like, God, I don't like how you're running the universe. And, and God says, okay, how about you do it for a little bit, okay? I don't know for how long. Maybe it was 24 hours or whatever. So he's going to run the universe. Well, he's, he was bullied by some guys, Bruce. He's, he was bullied by some guys. And so now that he's God, he finds them in an alley, and he confronts them. You guys remember the story? Okay. And so And so he confronts these bullies, and he says... He says, You guys need to apologize to me because basically he's saying, I'm God and you're not, and you need to apologize to me. And one of the thugs, one of the bullies, says, I'll apologize to you when you make a monkey come out of my my butt. Okay. I apologize for that. It's a little bit gross, but uh, I think it's a great illustration. And uh, because this is what I would do. Okay. And so, sure enough, Bruce Almighty has a monkey come out of this guy's butt, and all these thugs scatter. So so, so here's here's my thinking. I'm thinking, if I was Moses, if I was God, I'd tell Moses, go in there and tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't get with it, I'm going to have a monkey come out of his butt. Don't you think that's a great idea? Okay, maybe that's a little bit too graphic. I apologize. And if you're new here, welcome to Desert Breeze, okay? (laughs) Sorry. Okay, well... We'll, we'll lighten it a little bit. I mean, it is gross, and, and actually he does it in the movie, and like I said, all the guys scatter, and I'm just thinking, that's a good one. That's a good one. Or how about this one? To point to one of Pharaoh's magicians and have him burst into flames, and then turn to Pharaoh and say, you're next, dude. But, so, but God doesn't do that. And I think he's showing his mercy and I think it's severe mercy. And he's saying, I'm going to bring plagues, but I'm going to also warn you of these plagues because I'm going to give you opportunity to, to repent and believe. Yes. And he does it over and over again. In fact, Exodus chapters 5 through 11, you have disorder and disintegration. And, it's the, and Exodus 5 through 11 is the undoing of Genesis 1 through 2. So you've got... Genesis, uh, you got Exodus 5 and 11 is disorder and disintegration through these plagues and it's the undoing of Genesis 1 and 2 which is order and flourishing so what God is saying through the plague is my power, my laws, my authority they're not arbitrary it's not an exercise of just naked power in fact anytime you see miracles in the Bible he's just not exercising he's not just flexing his muscles hey look at this there's a point there's a message in, in all of this Everything I tell you to do is to protect you from the worst and to provide the very best for you. Here's the point. It's on your notes here. We were designed to know, love, and obey God supremely, and when we are faithful to that design, we flourish. That's the point. That's why the plagues are coming in. There's almost this disintegration and unraveling because of their rebellion against God. Now, let me talk about this. I I gave you the Ten Commandments. I also gave you Psalm 1, 1 through 3, where he talks about meditating on God's law day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. In season, he will bear fruit. He will, his leaf will not wither. Whatever he does, he will prosper. So to disobey God is to trample on his love and wisdom. Did you guys hear that? Wake up. I'm telling you, that's so critical. That's so important. That, I didn't mean to be so loud and so offensive there. But, <laughs> but yeah, I did, okay? Because I know people that are just like, I can do whatever I want to do. I can live however I want to live. Why would you do that? He has given us directives in his word. And they come from his infinite, his perfect wisdom and infinite, uh, his perfect love and infinite wisdom. He loves us. No one's ever loved you more. And so to disobey God is to trample on his love and wisdom. It is a dagger in the heart of God. The fear that I won't be happy if I obey God is the same lie Satan told in the garden. Yes. And so here's the next one. To disobey God unleashes forces of disorder and disintegration spiritually, psychologically, physically, emotionally, and relationally. Oh, my goodness, just look at our culture. The culture we live in is anti-God. god it is rebelled against God. And there's a, there's a disorder and there's a disintegration that happens as a result of that. I mean, all people have to do is look around. This place is a mess. That alone should drive us into the heart of God and drive us closer to him. And that's just his severe mercy to say, "Well, wow, you know, if that's what you want, that's what you get because you've rejected and rebelled against me. So you're gonna get disorder and disintegration as a result of that. And I gave you some great verses there. In fact, you see the disorder and disintegration as a result of Adam and Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, it says, God cannot be mocked. God will not be mocked. God is not mocked. You think you can shake your fist at God and do your own thing? Have at it. Because he says, God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap destruction. Disorder, disintegration, you reap to the Spirit, you, you sow to the Spirit, you sow to God, you listen to God, you obey God, and you're going to reap eternal life. And then he says, listen, don't grow weary in well-doing, because in due season, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up, because sometimes it seems like you're doing all the right things, but nothing's happening. Hang in there. Don't quit. Don't Stop. Because in due season, you will reap a harvest and you will be glad you hung in there even though it gets tough and even though it's difficult. And so let me give you some examples of what this might look like in our own life. Here we go. I'm gonna try to get this through, okay? Because we're, we're about at 48 minutes right now, okay? Okay, and I think I can finish this within the next couple hours, okay? Actually, we can be, we'll be done here in about... F- okay, I'm not gonna make any estimates here but let me give you some examples of this unraveling so for instance uh, physically a 55 year old man is told by his doctor to cut back on cholesterol dang it I'm 61 but uh, and so the man isn't going to say to his doctor don't tell me what to do you're just trying to control my life and wreck all my fun The, the the guy wouldn't say that unless he's goofy in the head and there's maybe a few people out there that are like that. Or, and he wouldn't say, so, if I keep eating a lot of cholesterol, you're probably going to have me arrested and thrown into jail. He's not going to say that either. No, the doctor's directives reflect the nature of his being. That is the nature of his patient's being to help him live a life of flourishing and freedom. So to ignore the doctor's orders would be to trample on... His best interest for you, for you the patient, and to trample on your own well-being by giving yourself possibly high blood pressure and maybe a heart attack and premature death. And so it is with God's directives. What's interesting about this is that uh, you don't break God's laws. You break yourself against His laws. You knew that, didn't you? You break yourself against His laws. The doctor has studied anatomy and physiology. God created it. And so when he gives us these directives, it's, it's for our good. It's, it's based on his infinite wisdom and perfect love of our maker. And let me give you a spiritual example of this. The Bible tells us you shouldn't have anything in your life as more important than me. That's what God would say. You shall have no other gods before me, first of the Ten Commandments. What if you have your job as more important than God? God isn't going to say, for that, I'm going to make you get into a car accident or cause you to break your leg. No, He's not going to do that. He doesn't do that. No, becoming a workaholic unleashes forces of disorder and disintegration into your life. With years and years of overwork, you will experience family disintegration, emotional disintegration. If anything goes wrong with your work, emotional disintegration, and physical disintegration. It's going to happen. Because you're breaking God's order and design. How about emotionally? The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.31, forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So unforgiveness does what? It leads to bitterness causing an emotional, relational, and physical disorder and disintegration. I mean, just, this is practical stuff. This is, just makes sense. And in fact, if you have bitterness in your heart, Unforgiveness turns to bitterness, so it's going to poison your life, you know, emotionally, relationally, physically, physically. I've known people that had physical ailments as a result of their unforgiveness and their bitterness through the years. Amazing. And so, it will probably even start to create disintegration of relationships with people who are like the person you're bitter at. Because it's called baggage that you carry into other relationships. And whether you realize it or not, subconsciously, that person looks and sounds and acts just like the person you totally can't forgive. And so if a woman wrongs you and you, you, know, you might become bitter at women in general. Or if a person of a particular race wrongs you, you might start to look at that whole race of people the same way. And so Why should we obey God? Because he is the only true God. He is the designer of our lives. Now, if we were to just stop there, that wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't be enough obeying God based on those two reasons is good but not enough because your motivation would be based on fear and or pride fear I don't want to experience disorder and disintegration in my life so I better get my act together well that's fear motivation or there could be pride motivation I'm not like all those bad people out there that are unleashing forces of disorder and disintegration into the world see fear and pride are self-centered reasons it's still about you You've got to be taken out of yourself. You've got to have a much deeper reason for wanting to transform your life and to follow him and obey God. Fear and pride can restrain the heart, but only the love of God can transform the heart, and he is the judge who is judged. This is the third reason why we should obey him, and you see in this text God's passion to be known and to be worshiped throughout that. And in the story of Exodus, God saves his people from judgment. Actually, he saves his people through judgment. God is a God of love and justice. Love is that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification. Justice is that aspect of his nature that requires payment for sins. And so you see both of these natures of God in this story of the plagues. Listen to me. The Israelites don't deserve to be saved any more than the Egyptians. Did you know that? They don't. It's God's grace. Yet God seems to be offering salvation through judgment to both. And that's that's the story. We saw that in Exodus 9, 15 through 16, because where God says, I could have wiped you guys out, but I didn't. And in fact, he says, God says through Moses to Pharaoh, I could have totally destroyed you by now, but I'm using this to show you my power and to proclaim my name throughout the earth. So what this does, this gives us a unique approach to salvation, suffering, and evangelism. Here's the first one. Christians are sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ's work, not their work. Not our work, but Christ's work. Jesus is the judge of the world who came to bear our judgment in his first coming before he comes to bring judgment. That's his second coming. Every other religion gives you a standard that you must meet or face judgment. Jesus not only lived the life we should have lived, but he died the death we should have died in our place for our sins. God passed the required sentence of death on our sin, and then he took that punishment himself on the cross. He is the judge who was judged And see, it's our small version of God. It's our small view of God that keeps me from grasping how wicked my sin is against him and what an act of mercy it was for him to save me. If I have a small view of God, it's like, I can't believe this is mean of God. No, 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 we deserve it. And yet he's going to step in and take it for us. When his greatness in the cosmos humbles you, then his goodness on the cross will move you. Here's the next point. Plague, suffering are God's severe mercy, warning us of future judgment and giving us opportunity to repent and believe. Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Second Peter 3, 8. 3, eight through ten. Let me just read verse nine of that of that text. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but his but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here's what he's doing. When you go through difficulties, it's his severe mercy. He's trying to pry your fingers off of those things you think you can't live without, so that he can give you. Truly, what you can't live without and that's more of himself. That's what he's doing. That's his severe mercy. Listen to what what Spurgeon said. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. St. Augustine put it this way. In my deepest wound... I saw your glory, and it dazzled me. So as we come to him, as we repent and believe, and he begins to fill us up with all that he is, here's the last one. Christians are to reclaim what God has lost, what man has lost, sorry, what man has lost through sin and restore God's rule and reign through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. And so you see this thing throughout the text, throughout this book, let my people go so that they can worship me. Let my people go so that they can worship me. We are called to work against the plagues, the suffering in this world. Jesus' miracles were unplagues. Did you know that? Jesus' miracles were unplagues. They were not naked displays of power to prove he was God. They were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order before the fall. Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus proclaimed the gospel, and then he demonstrated the gospel by loving the outcast, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes, casting out demons. And we are to do the same. Where the plague of sin has brought disorder and disintegration, we are to bring order, healing, and hope through the gospel. Let's pray. God, we love you. Wow, what an amazing message from your word this morning. And so, God, we are designed to know you, to love you, to obey you, to enjoy you, to live our lives for. Uh, for you because you are the only true God, the designer of our lives, the judge who is judged in our place for our sins. And when we are faithful to that design, we flourish. And so may we be faithful to that design and experience the fullness of life that only you can give and help many others to experience all that we are experiencing through you for your glory and our joy in Jesus' holy and beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. Love you guys.